chance, please, please say good day to him. Uh, he planted this church 14-something years ago, and he's a massive hugger. So if you want to just say good day and show him your love, I want to see a big grip. Uh, go under arms. Uh, I saw Keith give him a, a two-second pat and release, and that wasn't enough. So if you can just give him a good, nice, warm hug, nestle in, share your deepest concerns, that, that's what he loves. So please make sure you say good day to Craig. Uh, so, and he'll be preaching tonight for us uh, on the topic of angels, um, and then we'll have another Q&A after tonight's session for the ability to... Jump in further, learn a little bit more about that often mysterious topic. So I trust that by now you're in Mark chapter 12. Uh, and we, of course, have uh, come to the end of Mark chapter 12, where last week we saw the relationship between the Jews' expectation for what Messiah would look like. That is Messiah, meaning uh, Christ, the, the Old Testament promised one who would come and, and was David's son and his Lord. And they had all of these expectations and it was told to us from uh, verse uh, 35 through to verse 37 as, as, as the weeks prior, well, really is the day prior in Jesus' timeline. But for us, over the last few months, what we've seen is that as Jesus came into the Temple Mount on the donkey, he was praised as Lord from Psalm 118. They quoted that and sung that, here is our chosen one. Here is the one that comes in the name of the Lord to redeem us and save us. And they had that element of faith. And then, of course, later on in the week, they are going to be, uh, and Jesus has already made uh, uh, a note of it in one of his, his argumentations. They're sort of fulfilling the next half of Psalm 118, which was that the builders, the leaders of the day, would reject the Messiah and in so doing, both elevate the Messiah and see themselves thrown down. This is marvelous in the Lord's sight, Psalm 118 says, and it is God's doing. It is marvelous in our sight, and it is the Lord's doing. So what we've been seeing is the, the leaders come against Jesus, Jesus proclaiming and explaining and picturing through both parables and miracles that he is the coming king. He is the king come to fulfill what David was just a prefigurement of. Now, he has been their error. This is the error Explained to us last week, but we're going to do a, do a small portion of recap. The error of the Jews was that they expected the Messiah to come sort of in the lineage of David and bring to the Jews the same thing that David brought, but just a little bit better. They were expecting that their current kingdom, the current covenant they were in, that the Messiah would come and just sort of ratchet it all up a little bit. It was going to be the same kingdom the same covenant, but with less subjugation. The same kingdom, the same covenant, the same nation, the same sacrifices, the same laws, but a little bit less poverty, more money, more power, more, more trade, more blessings for Israel, less, less Romans, less foreigners. All of these things was what they thought was coming, that the Messiah would come, restore the kingdom of David so that they had the same thing but better. This is the key, the very core of their misunderstanding. It was because they thought that, that they were utterly blind to the obvious Messiah in front of them. Because if they had been reading the prophets and the Psalms, David himself who had spoken, if they'd really been reading and understanding those, they would have understood that the Messiah does not just come down to promote the kingdom of Israel. He comes down to establish his own kingdom. The kingdom not of David, but of David's Lord, which David's kingdom was just getting the world ready for. So that he's coming down and bringing a new covenant. 
a new way established in his blood to relate to the God who created us, to whom and against whom we have all sinned and offended and been found guilty, defiled and unholy. The new covenant that Jesus is bringing, which would formulate that new kingdom under his reign, was not like the old covenant that God made with their fathers in the desert, that if they bring lambs and bulls and goats and bleed them in the holy place, then he will bless them in the land. Much greater than that is that Jesus was coming to be that sacrifice as God in flesh for our sins, in our place. He would go before the Father and die that day on the cross, which we're leading up to very, very slowly, but very soon, to be held up on the cross, not simply as a, as a political victim of the Romans or religious persecution of the Jews, but rather as the slaughtering of the Lamb of God for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of all of the Jews that would believe. This is the new covenant. Jesus would be the better sacrifice. He would therefore truly bring all who have faith, not who bring a sacrifice, not who bring a, a cash donation, not who bring a certain amount of your life lived in obedience to God's law, but simply those who hear the good news of the Messiah, those who hear the great and grand promises of the new covenant that he brings to establish and say, I, I believe that. I cast my soul into Jesus' care. I rest my weight on Jesus' salvation. I trust the Lord Jesus to die for me, raise for me, rule for me. He's everything for me. He was perfect. I am not. I, I trust him. If that's you, then you are engrafted into the covenant that Jesus brings. The covenant that, coming back to his own day, to the Jews, that if you're expecting a political party, if you're expecting a political messiah, if you're expecting a messiah to try and copy David instead of completely outshining David in the kingdom that he brings, you will miss. You will entirely miss the gospel of the covenant of the kingdom, the gospel of heaven, the good news of the king, the, all of that that is spoken of in the, power, in, in the, in the gospels. You'll miss it if you, if you define Jesus. Put some kind of other expectations on top of Jesus. And even before we move on, we, we know that this is, this is condemning even of people in our day, maybe even us today. Maybe you sitting right here because you've, you've thought, like the Jews, that Jesus sounds great. All of these promises of, of God coming into my world and making my life better and sort of giving to me what I have now, but all polished up and the rust removed and maybe even a great cherry on top. That's Jesus. That's, that's what many people have accepted or maybe heard the preacher to be saying, that you can keep your life. It'll look exactly like it looks. You'll relate to God exactly the way that you relate to God on your terms. You do what you want to do. But, friends, you'll get eternal life at the end of it. And, the, and there might even be some, some owing that the church has for you now. If you call yourself a Christian, we'll look after you and we'll meet all your needs. And you come in here and you fill in a ballot and say what kind of music you like, what kind of chairs you like, what kind of preacher you like, all of that stuff. And, and Jesus will give you your life back, but it'll be better. We fall into the same trap. When what Jesus does to us today through the preached word and to the Jews of his day in the temple that day as he's standing teaching, he's telling them, I'm not coming on your terms to ask what you like and to meet your needs. I am coming fulfilling the prophecies, the promises, and the covenant of the Lord God, establishing my kingdom. Join it by faith or perish in your sins. That's the message. 
of Jesus in the temple this day leading up to Easter. So look now at Mark chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 38 to the end of the chapter. It reads like this. And in his teaching, he said, so this is just a summary, a small portion of what his teaching was. In his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts who devour up houses of widows and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in very large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing into the offering box. For they shall have all con- contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. May God bless the reading of his own powerful, authoritative, inerrant word this morning. Amen? Amen. What a word is... As we sort of come to this point where, where this zenith of, of, of opposition is taking place, where we've seen and we've titled the whole book of Mark series under The King Has Come, because this is Jesus coming, proving through preaching and through miracles and through opposition with the established leadership of the day that he is bringing the kingdom because he himself is the king. What we see is this opposition is coming to a zenith, coming to its head, which is going to push them over the edge and murder him, which of course, it is marvelous in God's, in our eyes, what God does with this. That is the very act which establishes his kingdom in his blood as the sacrificial sacrifice. Sacrificial sacrifice, there you go. A double up, uh, you didn't notice it, I noticed it, I drew your attention to it. You've got to be awake for those things. I want critique, I won't listen to it, but I want, I want to make sure you're listening. That he would come and do that would be the zenith, that that moment coming up on Good Friday and the explosion of new life and the new creation out of the the womb of the earth, out of the tomb is coming. And so in this this zenith, uh, it seems strange that he would then sort of take a side note and just point out a widow's offering. Is it in context? We have to ask this. And what is the connection in this flow? And of course, what we see is that as Jesus has just said, you you can picture him on the throne above every other throne. Picture him now on the most shining, glorious, uh, 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 beautiful throne, full arrayed in majesty. And, and it's sort of there that he's kind of preaching out of his authority to these people in, in, the, in the temple. He is just standing on a platform, but imagine him in his glory as he tells them, David had a great kingdom. David had a great throne. I am his Lord. I have a greater throne and kingdom. Picture him there. And then from there, he gives both condemnation to the spiritual elite who claim to be the closest to his throne, and he gives honor to the poor widow and people like her who are apparently furthest from the throne. He goes from arguing his own kingdom and messiahship being greater than David's in all of its glory and riches, he goes from there to establishing a new honor 
ethic in that kingdom whereby he tears down their old idea of glory and honor and builds up a new kingdom, Christ-like picture of glory and honor. So look at verse 38. What you see is that Jesus starts out with the, with the beware. This is, of course, just a summary. You can read a, a full transcript of this scathing sermon. In Matthew 23, and of course Luke's uh, gospel will have a portion of it uh, 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 there too, but, but we have a short summary here in the book of Mark where Jesus says, Beware the scribes. You remember that, that story from the Old Testament when, when, again, to bring David into it all, great King David had not gone out to battle and had instead been tempted and himself forced to sleep with him, this woman Bathsheba that he was attracted to. And then he, he, of course, had her husband killed in battle. It was an assassination. He lied to everybody. And a child was born. And then Nathan the prophet is told, go up to David and, and rebuke him, but do it subtly. Do it through a parable. And so Nathan came to David, and no one knew of his sins except for Bathsheba and David. And, and he goes up to David, and he tells a parable about how a man had everything he wanted, and, and he coveted another poor man's sheep, the only sheep that he had, and he had that shepherd killed so he could steal the sheep, bring it into his house, butcher it and kill it. And, and David is infuriated, and he says, that man, whoever that is, whoever did something like that, needs to be draw, dragged here and given justice. He needs to be punished. And Nathan says, you are the man. And he's cut to the heart thrown into a, into a fit of repentance. In fact, that's what he then pens his Psalm 51 that Caleb read for us in our beginning of the service, this, this Psalm of repentance. Well, it's kind of like that. Imagine how much guts Nathan would have to have, anointed of the Lord as a prophet, to go up to the king that he knows has killed a guy over this whole debacle and tell him that he is under God's judgment lest he repent. It's kind of like that. Jesus, as we set the scene, he's in the temple. He's driven out the, the cellars. Some people are sort of leaking back in, but a great crowd has gathered to hear him. He's debated with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, put them all to shame. He's established his own kingship. And now, now he's going to tear down the scribes even further. They are the man, he's going to say. Look around you, the elites, your pastors, your shepherds. They are the ones under condemnation. Where you think they are the ones to be followed in an example, they are actually the ones you need to keep far away from. Imagine a, a, a wanted uh, a, a poster. We don't do that anymore. But imagine we were still printing out. We're in the Wild West. We're just printing out these big wanted posters in the police office and, and all of the, the beat cops are given bundles to go and put around town and, and stick her up. And, and as the commissioner is sending these guys out to get these wanted posters out onto the street, he, he happens to actually take a glance at the wanted poster and realize it's his own face on it as the danger, as the one that needs to be arrested. That, that, that's how confusing it would be for the people right now that's how, how upside down it would be to be the scribes and then hear Jesus say, they're the ones to be wary of. And look at what he says. <clears throat> as, as this covenant lawyer, we, we've spoken sort of about this in the, in the book of Mark. We went back to Malachi. It's in Isaiah. It's in Hosea. It's in other portions of the prophets. The Old Testament prophets were sent to Israel as covenant lawyers. God had made promises in that covenant with Israel which demanded obedience, 
and threatened cursings upon disobedience. And what the prophets were sent to do is say to the people, look at what the book says, look at what God told us to do, let's get back to doing it or we will find ourselves cursed. And so blessing and cursing is both on offer. Blessing for the faithful, cursing for the disobedient. We see Jesus do very much the same thing in his ministry, and this is one example. He's bringing the woes, the cursings, the covenant lawsuit against those who claimed to be in it. So back in verse 38, he says, beware of the scribes. And then he starts listing the very things they thought set them apart and were emblems of their holiness, of their sanctity, and of their true power. So look down at verse 38. It says there, he starts out with, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Now, in that, he's just said things that are not themselves evil. I'm sorry if you wore a a long dress that goes part. Well, if you're a dude, don't. But if you're a gal who's worn a long dress, you're not under the the condemnation of the Lord here. You would be if you're buying this pulpit. I'm not a Presbyterian. We don't wear those big, long, roby things. We've moved on to it because we read this text, and I don't like robes and dresses. But nonetheless, it's, it's not in itself that a long piece of cloth is evil, but these things were symbolic of their hypocrisy. They'd become emblems of, a, of an apostate, hypocritical, elite spiritual system. It's sort of like uh, Jesus in our day might say something like, uh, oh, beware those who have thriving, enormous congregations. Those people who have plush, polished, well-to-do buildings for their church. You, woe to you who have, who have the, the conference deals and the book deals and the, and the, 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 the mateship with the political arena and, and all of the speaking engagements that, that they might, he might say that to them and we might say, is any of those things necessarily evil? No, but that's the wrong question. The question is, why is he listing those things? It's because they've become symbolic of an apostate, evil, worldly, even demonic, elite system of spirituality. So he says the long robes. This is what they would wear. It's actually uh, sort of taken from Scripture. They took it. They extended it. Uh, They would wear these long robes to really set them apart, to be different from, distinct from, and holier than thou. They would wear these long, easily identifiable robes as teachers, They would like the greetings in the marketplace that is to give them honor. They they would expect people, even demand of people, to to speak their name in a loud voice and greet them and sort of, you know, hear ye, hear ye, here comes Rabbi Nachathanael and here's all his great things that he's done and, and they would give these praising adorations and greetings. They wanted that. They lived for that. They loved that, that in, the, in the synagogues, they would, which is pretty much the, the Old Testament version of, of churches, they would gather, sit around like you would, somebody would teach and preach from the scroll, they'd have a couple of psalms and hymns, and, and in there they would have a specialized seat close to the platform that, that faced everybody else. I'd imagine we just had the, the elders' seats up here, right, one on this side of the pulpit to stare you down as you listen or try and listen to a lengthy exposition of Old Testament Scripture. And so that you look at the Scripture and you can't help but also look at them. They had these elevated seats of honor because they loved the honor that would come to them by so doing. They also had the, 
uh, uh, the, the, at the feasts. They would want to sit at the head of the table. They would get all, the, all of the glory and all of those things. But look at what he says in verse 40. This is where it goes downhill. There's, there's no way to do these things in a neutral way. It says that they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. It's, it's a part of the historical manuscripts, a part of the, the, the accounted history that they find accounts of what rabbis and scribes and Pharisees would do to pull widows, or, or maybe not pull widows, but they'll pull widows when they were done with them. Women who had lost their family and lost their husband were, were aged and not really of the age that you would remarry and have more children, but they would just be bereft and just alone. What they would do is, is open up the, the synagogue, open up the, the, the leadership to these people and say to the, to the widows, you come in and what we can do is we can look after your assets for you. You're getting aged. You don't have to worry about all of your assets that your husband left behind. We'll look after them. We'll give you your allowance each week. And in so doing, they embezzled cash out of these poor ladies' bank accounts. They would also sort of just charge a high price for pastoral visitations. You go and visit a widow, well, you've got you to pay for that to have a holy man in your little abode. They would charge inordinate amounts of money for that. They would, they would do all sorts of things as well as just flat out lying to the widow there's, there's documentation that said they would just label them crazy, get them sort of to sign a medical certificate, if you would, to say that they are, in, uh, that they are uh, uh, crazy and out of their mind. Maybe dementia is set in if they even dare question what the scribes are doing. These were men who were fleecing the flock and abusing these old ladies. And then, of course, to cover it all up, they made long prayers. It says, for a pretense, they made long prayers. So that I know I, I do that to you. And of course, I take all my money, all of your money, and you're very hungry. Close your eyes. Why don't we just pray about it? And we'll just see who, who God is telling us in our hearts is really the person in the right. Let, let's pray. And, and on they would go and pray and pray for a pretense, using their position, spirituality, to sort of twist the arm of the, of the, the poor, poor widow. And, and of course, then he says... There's, they will receive a greater condemnation. We need to see here a severe warning for the use of religion, the use of Christianity, the, the involvement in church life that is used for your pretense or for your benefit rather than true, soul-surrendering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion, even Christianity, without your union to Jesus by faith, is damning. And in fact, he says that they will receive the greater condemnation. This is why, look, into, uh, uh, look at verse 40 when he says, they will receive the greater condemnation. It is not only that they are going to be condemned for not having faith, for their sin, but it will be worse than the atheist. It will be worse than the pagan who, who is across the, the land and sea away from the Jews who are doing the same thing, abusing the widow and taking their money and slaughtering the children and, and being so unsanctified. Of course, that person goes to hell. But they have a less hot hell than the teacher of the word of God who claims a nearness to Christ and nearness to God and a holiness about their life. Those have committed a greater profanity. They've represented God to the people and therefore they will receive a greater condemnation. Therefore, James will say things like, let not many of you be teachers for you will be judged more harshly. 
We see even Jesus say, to those who much is given, much is expected. So that they stood in sort of the, the seat of teaching and they shut the door in people's faces, they would receive not just the, the, the condemnation of unbelief, but the condemnation of profaning that which they claimed to believe. Now, I just want to speak a word to us this morning before we get to the example of the widow and say, if that is you, if you are somebody who has joined yourself maybe to this church, maybe to a family member's church, you just jump in the car as they're leaving for church on a Sunday morning and you come along and maybe even go to midweek things and you sort of engage a little bit because there's just nothing that can go wrong with a little bit of Jesus in your life or maybe you think yourself a Christian but you have never seen in your lived experience the, the dominion, the power, the regularity of sin at all abated, at all lifted off of your life and so you're claiming to be a Christian and living in the, in the throes of sin, you are not truly saved. Jesus will say that it is one thing to be condemned as an unbeliever, but to add false profession on top of that is a greater condemnation, especially if you know yourself an unbeliever, but want to twist this whole thing for your benefit like Judas. You're no nearer to salvation because you pretend, but friends, you're no further back from the grace of God simply because you've spent years pretending. He is able today to save you if you've just come or have recently come to a realization that you are under the wrath of God through claiming to be a Christian. You are, you are not too far for the grace of God to reach you and save you and justify you and bring you into his family. You may escape this great, great condemnation. But look at verse 41 and following, and we see this simple example that we, we read before, and I can summarize now, where he said that he, he sort of, after this preaching, after this long sermon against the leaders, he gathers up his disciples, and where do they go? They go and sit down just opposite these big trumpet-shaped uh, uh, receiveries of money. So they had 13 of them sort of in, the, in another quarter of the temple. As you get closer to the temple itself, they, they went into there. And it's sort of as awkward. I want you to picture it as if, as if five or six people on each aisle were just asked by the elders to get up and, and watch each person as they put in money and, and sort of just count. Because when you've got a big metallic structure and you're throwing coins in, it was part of the showmanship to uh, you know, sort of hear how many times those coins went clang. So you, you put something in and they, they, you use an envelope to be subtle and they open it up and say, uh, $40 from the gentleman here in the black shirt. And so they went on and just announced it to everybody. That's about how awkward Jesus is. When he gets his 12 disciples, goes up, sits opposite the offering baskets and watches. Now, there's some people who like that. There's some people who really appreciated that there was a growing crowd because their whole point in giving was they would have, they have little trumpet players, they would have little, little drummer boys who would sort of announce and show that these guys are about to pour in their buckets and buckets of gold and silver coins. So they liked a, a little bit of a show, but Jesus doesn't look, doesn't take note of, doesn't commend anybody but the poor little widow. The widow who after making her offering had nothing left to go home and live on. That woman, I bet, probably waited at the back of the line or maybe tried to sneak in behind one of the servants of the rich guys. She didn't want to be seen. She was doing it in secrecy. 
She was doing it in humility and all she did. She, she takes her two coins, which together make a penny. You didn't even know that there was such a thing as a half penny. Well, there is. Basically, you, you can think of, take your smallest coin today, break it in half. That's about what she had to offer. A couple of cents, maybe, maybe somewhere up to 20 cents. She's going to make this offering into the church offering basket. She does she tries to slip away. Maybe she hears Jesus. Maybe she's hard of hearing. But she hears uh, the, the people around him, the 12 disciples, hear him say as he calls them to himself. And he says, uh, down in verse 42, uh, it says that she came and made that offering. And in verse 43, he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow. I wonder if she just stopped as she was trying to walk out secretly. Hood pulled over her head. There wasn't many other poor widows around. That's me. He's pointing me at it. And maybe, maybe she even starts, am I about to be rebuked by David's son-in-law, the guy who's been preaching all day? What a, what, what a horrible time for me to go and pick, to go and make my offering. This poor widow. Imagine you get up in the sermon. You just go, go to the toilet, go have a drink. You're, you're feeling ill and you need to go. And, and, and you just get called out from the stage. This large gentleman in the jacket. Oh, and you're just about to push the door. You don't know whether you want to hit the guy or just shrink. You feel awkward. Jesus, this poor widow, gentlemen, my 12 disciples, you who will now go and teach the churches, take for an example this poor widow. She has put in more than all those who are contributing into the offering box. Do you, did you ever maybe get a mark in school or you get your tax return or you get a pay and you realize somebody hit an extra digit, like they put an extra three zeros or they forgot a decimal point, you just got 140000 for a week into your bank account and you think, do I tell somebody? And immediately, I know you, you're as sinful as me, it's happened to me, you immediately Google what your legal requirements are <laughs> And whether or not you can play it like you did with your brother in, in, at home and go, oh, well, well, he did it to me. I, I just didn't say anything. No, just in case it's ever happened to you, you are actually legally, you can be fined for theft if you don't report it. It sucks. It re, it, it's tough. Not anyway, an accountant makes an error and you think, this person, their idiotic blunder is my reward. Maybe she's thinking at this moment, Jesus, bad of, bad of sight, thought that the rich guy in front of me was my offering, maybe, she thinks. He just said she put in more than everybody. <laughs> this is good. He's not going to embarrass me as I thought. And what does he say next? For she, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. Oh, he, he really does call her out. And you'd think, if we were thinking like wise, trying to be balanced Christians, surely Jesus' application or commandment was, woman, take the money back. Or woman, take from our discipleship treasury that, the, that Judas watches over. Like, take my money. Maybe that would be his application because Jesus never wants radical or extremity, uh, extreme disciples in, in those who follow God. Like, is that the application? It's not. What Jesus says is, this woman is to be commended. He, he, he says this by implication, of course. Look at her. She has done what they did not. She gave more than them, which tells you immediately God doesn't count with fingers and abacuses and calculators. He doesn't count digits. He doesn't count amounts. He counts sacrifice. He said over and over through the prophets, I don't need sacrifices. I'm not waiting for you to make an offering before I can save Israel or before I bless your family. I'm waiting for your heart to be in the right place. And so while these rich men 
had given buckets of coins into the offerings. This woman had made just a tiny, tiny offering. But what did they go home to? This is the question. When God looks at our hearts as we give to the kingdom, to the Lord God, and, and, and to the work and the building of his kingdom, when we give, God is asking, what are you going home to? Is there something there that is not there anymore because we sacrificed by our selling in order to give to another cause? Is there anything about us going home? Will, will we even feel what we just offered up at church, up, up at the temple for the Jews, of course? Will we feel anything during that week because of what we offered? Or are we making sure that we're giving enough that we just never feel it? It's in the budget. It's sort of snuck away. It's enough so when no one asks questions. It's enough to... Quell my conscience, but is it enough to, to do good for the kingdom? Don't ask an amount at that point. Is it enough to do good for the kingdom is only answered by, was it enough to hurt? Was your offering a genuine sacrifice to God, or was it just a, a, a nice little throwing of coins to the Lord Jesus? For this woman had nothing to go home to. Now, now, some people try and be balanced and say, uh, or try and maybe over-apply and say, unless you give everything and go home to nothing, it's, it's not worth to God, so sow into my ministry. Of, of course, we won't go there. But also not going to go to the other side and say, say that, uh, actually, be careful, don't do this. She should have kept her money. You always need a savings account, etc., etc. I'm not going to go there either. Because let's just think it through. If it was that many coins, if that's all that she had, what good would it have been to take it home and try and live off of it? It was worthless anyway. What she's showing is, is, this, is where her heart is. She had a choice that morning as she knew it was offering time at the temple. She picked up her coins and she had a choice. Either she could think like a human without a sovereign shepherd over her named Yahweh and she could try and keep this, turn an investment on it, just, just hold on to her worldly possessions until her belly was empty and her heart stopped beating. Or she could go and in boldness, hobble up to the, to the, to the offering uh, table and in faith proclaim that I trust the God who says he looks after widows. I trust the God that, that blesses those who have nothing and yet give. I trust the God who says that if I put his kingdom first, I will not starve. She gave and Jesus doesn't need to run up with a bag of cash to give her or tell us that somebody gave her money out of the offering. We know. By the promises of God in Scripture, she did not go home and starve. God looked after her. There may not be many widows of this description in our midst this morning, and yet there are many of us who, unlike the widow, strain ourselves to hold on to what we have because who is there that can give me what I need if I give away in excess? I mean, is there anyone out there who, say, watches sparrows and knows the hairs on my head and created me and saved me by the blood of Jesus and gives me life and breath and everything every morning? Say, is there anyone out there who could help to meet my needs? I don't know. Probably not. We'll go to church this morning. We'll keep as much as we can, give a penny or two and look after ourselves. But if we have faith like the widow, we say, we give what we can settle in our heart to give. We give with sacrifice because God's kingdom is worthy of being built. And, and if we lose out, if we have little, if we have need, we will again throw ourselves on God in faith. Jesus holds up these two examples, one to be afraid of, outward show of religion, 
impressive spirituality and the other. Nothing to impress but a heart of devoted faith and reliance on God. Who this morning will you emulate? Whose example are you walking in, my friends, this morning, both in your giving, in your life, in your schedule, in the way you parent, in the way you are friends, in the way you show hospitality, in the way you share the gospel, in the way you leave time aside of your week in order to to speak to your friends at work, and in order to do those works of the kingdom, are you trusting that whatever you're missing out on, God will look after you? God will, will not let those, he will not let anybody out give him. He is never in debt to anybody. But of course, our second to last application is to be unpretentious in all that we do. Be unpretentious in all that we do. Of course, that has a technical meaning. We say pretentious and we just sort of mean he's a jerk. What, what pretense means is, is that there's something that he is, a, an ulterior motive that is trying to be aimed at. And so we will do something for you, maybe for God, maybe in front of you, maybe for God in front of you, so that my ultimate desire, which was to be seen a certain way, to be thought of a certain way, to be spoken of a certain way, to be elevated in my job or ministry in a certain way, so that that would be accomplished, I'll do this thing for you as long as. God calls us to purity. This is that we would have a love and a service and a, and a religious love towards one another that does not think what we get out of it, but thinks what we can genuinely give to the other person. A, a heart without pretense. A heart and motives that are pure. That when you say, why do you love me like this? Or why do you give like this? Or why do you speak like that? Or why do you serve in this way? The answer can only be, look, I'm repenting of all of the pride and desire of honor that I have in me. But my reason is because God has so loved me. How can I not also love my brothers and sisters, the poor, the needy, the unsaved? Our hearts towards one another and, of course, towards God must be without pretense, unpretentious. For for when we have pretense for a show, Jesus doesn't watch. He said in in a a prior gospel, he says that, that when you do that and you get seen and people speak well of you, there's your reward. Three or four seconds of impressed human hearts. They'll forget about you tomorrow. But when you give in secret, there's no reward from humans. God himself, like Jesus in the temple, is sitting and watching intently for what you've served, what you've done, and what you've given monetarily, God sees. And he promises to commend and exalt and bless. The question of why or how how can I as a sinner, like, I've tried this, I've tried service, I've tried working for others, I've tried giving, I've tried praying, I've tried going to the services where you, where you ask for the Holy Spirit's unction or blessing or something. Like, I've tried Christianity, but I can't escape this, this heart within me that's always doing it for my own glory. Maybe it's just me that grew up with that that I kept hearing sermons, kept hearing lists of what I need to do, kept reading scriptures of commanding how Christians are supposed to live, but I could not, no matter how deep I dug, what I kept on hitting underneath the surface of my behavior was this heart that desired glory and fame and honor and pretense. The only way to escape that, friends, is instead of thinking about how you're serving, how you're working, how you're doing, what other people think of you, leave that behind. Go to the Lord God in prayer today, now, during our final song, during the baptisms. Relate to God now and say, God, this heart 
is evil. It desires glory. I cannot escape it. The more I try, the more it bleeds out. God, you must give me a new heart. Give me a heart that relates to you first by faith alone. There is no pretending pretense when you're before the throne of a holy God. Do not leave it until judgment day to be made aware of the fact that you had a false profession. If you're the sort of Christian that has had all of this outward show, but very little internal reality, it is my duty. It's my duty. As, a, as the calling to be a pastor makes it my duty, I have to question you. Do you have a genuine faith? When you are called to the throne of God for judgment, will you be found with lots of outward show? But when that is stripped away, you are naked, poor, pitiable, and sick. Or do you have a heart? While it struggles with those sins, while it doesn't serve or give perfectly, do you have a heart that rests and trusts on the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice and righteousness alone? And if you do, and you must, have that heart now. Believe on him. And if you do, then the rest of what you do will be, will be filled with the Spirit of God. You will be able to give, serve, do, help with a heart that is ever being more and more sanctified. Can you bow with me as we pray over this time in the Lord's word this morning? Father God, Father God, we pray to you with great thanks and gratitude for the Bible, for your word, miraculous, supernatural, spiritual, divine, given to us through your holy apostles and prophets. And God, in it we find the witness and the testimony, the message of your Son. The message of your son who came to save from heaven, that though he was rich, he became poor. That you gave, Lord, out of your heart of generosity, you gave your son to die and be won back in the resurrection with many saved souls. Father God, I pray that the gospel would be first and foremost in our hearts, so that if we do not relate to it or to you through the gospel, through the gospel of free grace in the blood of Christ, that God, you would give to us that heart of repentance this morning. Lord, all of us who do know you, let us never be distracted by outward show of others or the outward show that we have put out and pretended. Lord, let us never take our eyes off Jesus, the dead, buried, resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Let us always remember him. But God, as we live and as we seek to give glory to this king in the new covenant, in this new kingdom, would you fill us with your spirit to be generous to others? to hold loosely the dust that is in the form of coins and paper notes and cars and houses and rooms and clothes and things like that. It is all made of dust and it will return to dust at the last day. God, let us hold it loosely with generosity, loving the feeling of sacrifice and letting things go if it means that your kingdom is built and Lord, especially build our faith in that. Allow us to rely on you even more. Allow us to know to know with rock-solid assurance that he who has saved my soul will not fail to meet the needs of my life. For we hold the, the words of Jesus over us this morning. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these other things will be added to you. God, we rely on you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.